Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. It's Friday, July 25th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Swell, or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. They bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on topics such as science, history, music, fine arts, and so on, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on old-fashioned DVDs and CDs. But the best part is is that you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without homework, exams, or anything like that. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of the course by Professor Stephen Novella called Your Deceptive Mind. So to get this offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds and you can find out more right there. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Before we get into this week's show, I just want to let you know some great news that we are very psyched about. We have a website, a home on the internet at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. We have all of our shows there, all of the articles about our shows, links to all of the other places on the internet where we already exist. And so we sincerely hope you will go and check it out and bookmark it. Again, that's motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. This week on Inquiring Minds, I interviewed science writer David Epstein. He wrote a number of very high-profile sports science pieces for the magazine Sports Illustrated, but this is his first book. He wrote a book called The Sports Gene that investigates the science of extraordinary athletic performance. Now, this is a topic that is of particular interest to me because I specialize in the training of musicians, trying to use science to help them develop more effective practice strategies. And of course, this idea that talent is really what drives musical performance or even athletic performance is something that is very pervasive in the conservatory world. So I really wanted to talk to David Epstein about what it, what is the evidence for a genetic basis for some of this extraordinary performance that may or may not trump training. When I first asked him about single genes that might be might affect a person's athletic performance. I was very skeptical that he could come up with one, but here's what he had to say. In another chapter in the book, I write about the myostatin gene, which is a gene that regulates muscle growth. So it, it codes for a protein called myostatin that basically tells muscle to stop growing. 
And in, in rare cases, someone has a mutant version that basically doesn't tell their muscles to stop growing on time, and they end up being really, really muscle-bound. And, and the first adult human identified with this mutation happened to be a pro sprinter. You know, and now the mutation's been found in thoroughbred racing horses, et cetera, et cetera. And every time a researcher publishes on this, they're bombarded with requests from athletes to be basically experimented upon for gene therapy, even though it's probably not safe. So, Chris, what do you think about that? I think that he's supplying great detail here and something I didn't know, but I'm, I can't say I'm shocked, right? Because we know that if people can get away with it in the highest level of sports, they will use substances to enhance their performance. Uh, that means that there's ways of manipulating your biology that make you succeed and it's worth, and apparently the success is so substantial that it's worth the risk to some people. So I'm not at all shocked that the underlying biology includes genetics. I'm, that doesn't shock me a bit. But it's also really, and it you know poses an interesting question to the extent of you know how fair is it if you are born with this gene versus if you have this gene kind of inserted through some kind of therapy later on. You know, it really it it comes to this question of of blood doping. If you just fill yourself up with your own blood, you know, uh, is that cheating or is that just you know the same thing as drinking an energy drink? Well, you know, I mean, there's this this is a very very deep question. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I think, you know, they made us all read in uh, in high school or junior high that novel Harrison Berger on, right, where everybody has to have, you know, various kinds of impairments to make them all equal. So if you're really tall, you have to wear weights on your body, right? Or sorry, if you're really strong, you have to wear weights on your... I mean, I don't know if we're going down that road with the question. <laughs> Well, I just it's some it's food for thought. And, uh, and so, you know, we'll, we'll talk a lot about in the interview, you know, about these kinds of t uh, issues and, and what we should be doing, looking to the future in terms of training our own children, if we want to make them super athletes. Mm -hmm. So that will be our interview for today. But first, Indre, we have a guest for the opening part of the show, and I will let you do the honors. So I first came across Clay Jones on Twitter uh, when he responded to a previous episode of ours. For our listeners, if you've, if you've heard it, it's with Zach Wienersmith. And on the episode, we were talking about how babies have evolved certain body shapes so that they could be catapulted over mountains. Um, if you don't believe me, you should listen to that episode. <laughs> but Clay pointed out uh, that at one point in the, in the discussion, I made a comment that babies don't like having gas inside of them, uh, that that this sometimes causes what we call colic. You know, they cry a lot. And he pointed out, rightly so, that in fact, the crying that accompanies or that is that is char that characterizes colic is probably not actually caused by gas. Uh, and so I was delighted to meet him on Twitter. He's a skeptical pediatrician, and he writes for the blog Science-Based Medicine. And as I mentioned to him on Twitter, there is almost no greater need for skepticism than in the field of pediatrics. So Clay Jones, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me on the show. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit first about what are the major issues that you that seem to be facing parents uh, right from the time their babies are born. And this is the vitamin K shot. So can you just tell us a little bit about what happens if someone doesn't get a vitamin K shot and, and why they should? Absolutely. So vitamin K hesitancy and refusal is certainly nothing new. We've, this is something we've been recommending since 1961 based on a lot of solid evidence that it truly does protect babies from some pretty severe outcomes. Um, the most meaningful of which is hemorrhaging into the brain. There can be minor complications like bleeding from the umbilical cord or in the nose or, or from a circumcision, for instance. 
But bleeding into the brain can be deadly and can have uh, lifelong consequences. And the shot, an intramuscular injection of vitamin K, uh, is virtually 100% protective. So you're saying that if a baby is, as soon as they're born, they get this shot, the chances of them developing these kind of hemorrhage complications goes down to essentially zero. Exactly. With some rare exceptions in infants who have underlying uh, liver disease or gallbladder disease, which are, of course, hard to predict uh, in the newborn period. Um, but in the vast majority, if not you know, as close to 100% as you can get in medicine, it's protective. So why would any parent refuse to uh, allow this shot to be given to their child? Well, there's a lot of overlap with that anti-vaccine mentality. Of course, the anti-vaccine movement gets a lot of the press. Um, refusing vitamin K injections has only recently kind of come to the forefront in the media after some very high-profile cases at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, where I, where I actually trained. Uh, within the past year, there were seven cases, so a pretty significant cluster. So parents refuse because of misinformation on the Internet, of course, just as with anti-vaccines, uh, anti-vaccine uh, mentality. Uh, they refuse because of concerns of pain from the injection, concerns of uh, unnecessary toxins, that it's an unnatural synthetic vitamin. Of course, this isn't true. Uh, and also, they worry that it causes leukemia, believe it or not, based on some pretty shady evidence from 1990 out of England, sound familiar, uh, which has been thoroughly refuted in uh, a number, I think 11 or 12 uh, studies, big, well-designed studies after the fact, uh, that show this to be not true. Um, but that's still out there. That was actually cited uh, in some of the Vanderbilt cases as a reason why parents refuse one of these two of these seven cases. Uh, let me let me ask here. I'm just wondering. You said that this started in 1961. Uh, presumably, babies were having this problem on a regular basis before that. I mean, this was a common thing that babies would, very young infants would suddenly have severe bleeding. Right. So it, it's not new. And before the vitamin K injections, uh, certainly it, it happened. Um, so we have to kind of break it down into the two types of vitamin K deficiency bleeding. There's early bleeding, which happens in the first week of life which is actually pretty common without vitamin K. As many as one, one and a half percent of babies would have this, some bleeding from the umbilical stump, from a circumcision, if it's a boy being circumcised, uh, maybe uh, a nosebleed, maybe some bleeding in, in the skin. Um, rarely is that fatal. Um, so certainly wasn't going to put our species at risk uh, from an evolutionary perspective. The, the late vitamin K deficiency bleeding is what everyone is worried about. It's significantly more rare, anywhere from 7 to 10 out of 100,000 births. Um, so when you consider about 4 million babies are born in, in the United States each year, uh, it adds up to anywhere from two, 300 uh, cases if nobody got vitamin K. The problem is, even though it's rare, about 20% of the, uh, of the time when it's a head bleed, it's fatal. Uh, as uh, close to half of cases of late vitamin K deficiency have long-term brain damage. Uh, so it, it, it is severe as a, uh, opposed to the uh, more classic first week bleeding, which tends to be more mild. Wow. Well, I mean, this is... But it's not frequent enough. Yeah. This is ahead, stunning. Sorry. No, this is stunning that anyone is resisting this. I mean... Uh, my God, I, I don't, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> well, I have to, you know, as a, as a mom, <laughs> um, coming in 
you've just given birth and you know there's this all this stuff that they tell you need to have your baby right on you and skin to skin and you know has to be this beautiful experience and so the idea of someone then taking you know a needle and putting it into your child i mean it it's it's emotionally it's hard to kind of swallow uh, in that very emotional state so i can see how in the moment moms would ref- or you know dads too would refuse uh this particular injection um but you know i think that think the the evidence supporting it is so strong that we really need to educate people before they get into that highly emotional state. Exactly. That really illustrates one of the major issues is communication. So the um, obstetricians, the midwives, they should be counseling, especially new moms who may not be aware uh, of the recommendation. They need to be telling them about why we do it, what's going to happen, so that they're not shocked by a nurse with a needle. Mm-hmm. And so there are some people who say, well, you don't necessarily need to give it to them in a shot. There are other ways to administer the vitamin. Is that true? Oh, it's absolutely true. Uh, so there are, uh, depending on what country you live in, not in the United States, there are recommendations to do oral vitamin K uh, supplementation. The problem with that is, and we have decades of data from Again, a number of countries, some of which have oscillated between doing the IM, doing the oral, sorry, IM is intramuscular, uh, doing the oral and doing nothing. Um, and so we have good data that shows that while oral is certainly better than nothing, it is not as effective as the intramuscular dosing. There are a variety of dosing regimens if you're going to give oral, some of which are a daily dose, some of which is are, are, are two or three doses over the first few months. And there's a problem with adherence. You have to remember to give the medication. If the baby has um, reflux and vomits a dose up, that can be an issue if they have uh, diarrhea. If they're on antibiotics, that can interfere with absorption of the vitamin K. There's a lot of factors that could potentially um, interfere with the ability of the oral dosing to work. So intramuscular is the best way to do it. Can I be blunt here? Um, so I just got to ask this. All right, this is the This is like... A horrific thing to have happen to an infant. Uh, I understand it's rare, but it's horrific. If there are real cases of this happening because somebody refused a vaccine, not a vaccine, just an injection of a vitamin, uh, how on earth does the anti-vaccine movement like stand up and defend itself? You mean the anti-vitamin? Well, K whoever they, whoever movement. is whoever is actually putting out this idea. I mean, it just it strikes me as something that you cannot seriously sustain uh in the face of anybody i mean i think you know like one would think i'm sorry i do think i mean it's it's an infant (laughs) you know i mean yeah it's this idea that that how you know how many infections post-surgery are okay you know the answer is zero if they're preventable right you wouldn't you wouldn't say to someone well let's not have the doctors you know wash their hands before surgery because it's a rare thing to get you know sepsis so in some ways it's the same argument here only one child having a brain hemorrhage because they didn't get the vitamin k seems to make it not okay too many exactly especially when you take into account just how ridiculously safe these intramuscular injections are a, a little bit of bruising around the side of the injection there's, there's not concerns of, you know, severe allergic reactions. There's not concerns of, you know, anything you, that families will think about with vaccines. Of course, they've all, you know, the majority have been disproven, but there's none of that. There's no autism concerns. There's no autoimmune disease concerns. It was leukemia. That really was, I mean, put, take it this way. Joseph Mercola even doesn't believe the leukemia risk. 
on his website, he says, actually, it's not linked to leukemia. But then he says, you don't need it. You know, I think I think the irony is that oftentimes the, the the people who are refusing vaccines, who are refusing the vitamin K, and this is, and I'm just speculating here, so there's a huge caveat to what I'm about to say. It seems to me that these are often parents of of otherwise healthy children, and it's the parents who have children with any kind of issues when they're born that then all of a sudden are more willing to tolerate any kind of you know a, a pinprick. To, to know that the child is not going to have this devastating hemorrhage, you know, to me seems like a no brainer. Um, so I wonder if there's something of that, that in some ways our, our babies are too healthy for us to be making these kinds of decisions in, in the most rational way. I mean, what if we went back 100 years before when the child mortality, infant mortality rate was much higher? I think people might be much more willing to do whatever it takes to prevent, you know, the death of their child. Right. I, I think to a large extent, you're absolutely right. Um, I, we don't have tracking in the United States. We don't know how many parents are refusing. Um, there, a lot of pediatricians are calling for just that to have some kind of national tracking system like they do in some other countries. Um, but I think it's probably safe to say in 1962, uh, the amount of refusals were probably considerably less than they are now. Um, just like when vaccine, when the polio vaccine was new, who was refusing the polio vaccine when they could look down the street and see a child who was uh, impacted. Um, so the condition that brain hemorrhaging, long-term neurologic dysfunction related to vitamin K bleeding um, is rare enough to where certainly no one's, very few people know anyone who it's impacted. Um, if they didn't catch the few news reports that came out of Vanderbilt, um, both in December and in May, they may not know it's even an issue. They may even get through the birth process and leave the nursery and not really realize what that shot was for or even that the child got it. Hmm. Wow. Well, this is, I had never heard of this. And so I guess I could just thank you for, for spreading the word about this and, and setting it straight. It seems so important. And it's very saddening uh, to have to hear about it at all. But thanks for being out there and explaining it to people. Oh, you're welcome. So um, we want to move on to another topic. And Clay, hopefully you can stay with us. Absolutely. It's relevant to kids um, and how you bring them up. But this time it involves the thoughts you put in their head, not the vitamins you do or don't put in their bodies. Uh, so we are learning, g making great strides in the psychology of religion these days. And it's not the first time we've talked about this on the show. And it's basically agreed now, I think, by you know sociologists, anthropologists, etc., that around the world, cultures show something like, something that you can call, quote, religion. And also, we're finding all these cognitive tendencies in humans that are even showing up when they're young children that seem to predispose towards some some kind of religiosity or some kind of supernatural belief. So just briefly, one of them is teleological thinking. So you, this is the assumption, almost automatic, that things have to exist for a purpose. So they get little kids and they show them a cloud and they ask them about the cloud and the kids will say, the cloud exists so it can rain. Or they say, show them a lion and they say, well, the lion exists to go in the zoo. Um, so this teleology, the idea is, is a sort of a gateway drug into being religious, <laughs> this idea that everything has a purpose. So anyway, I wanted to lay that out because people have taken that kind of observation and they have gone so far as to say, well, maybe religion is built in. It's sort of normal. It's what we're supposed to have. And the lack thereof is then sort of strange or odd, or I don't know if they'd go so far as to say deviant. Um, but there are some books out that have made this point to varying degrees. Uh, with titles like Born Believers and The Belief Instinct. 
Okay, so that brings us to a new paper that's just out in the journal Cognitive Science by Kathleen Corvo of Boston University and two colleagues, and they're experimentally testing this idea of whether kids are born believers. So they've got a group of five and six-year-olds. Some of them went to church, some of them didn't, and they presented them different kinds of stories, including realistic stories where there was nothing supernatural in the story, Um, but then also a story that involves a miracle, so God does something supernatural, but then a fantasy story where magic is used to do something supernatural or impossible. And then they ask the kids to categorize whether the character who's involved in having something supernatural happen is a real character or a pretend character. And the results are stark because the kids who didn't have a church background thought their religious characters were pretend. They thought they were make-believe. But the church-going kids didn't. Um, They thought they were real. And the church-going kids were more likely to rate the fantasy characters using magic as being real, too. Um, so basically the authors say we interpret this as evidence against this born believer hypothesis because the kids who didn't have religion in their life, in their social upbringing, uh, weren't inclined to take it seriously. They thought it was just all made up. What do you guys think of this? Do you think they did a good job figuring out which child, um, had a religious upbringing or not? Cause it seemed like they just asked, do you and your family attend services? Um, th- so we don't have a dose response right. it, with this. Which could be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Well, they also said, if I remember, I don't have it in front of me. They said they followed up to make sure that that was actually accurate. But they also, I I actually simplified a little bit. There were four groups. Um, There were parochial school kids, um, and then there were public school kids. Uh, And so the parochial school kids, even if they said they didn't go to church in their own lives, they considered them to to have been exposed to religious thinking because they were in a parochial school. So that also led to more belief in these um, fantastical things. Clay, what do you mean exactly by dose response? So it, if we're looking at a, a variable and its uh, potential uh, impact on, on something, uh, if there's a, a nice dose response that essentially if you're exposed to a little bit of it, you have a little effect. If you're exposed to a lot of it, you have a big effect. That is supportive that that factor really does have an, an effect on the outcome you're looking at. Yeah, it helps a causal inference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the study authors would probably say that with kids, uh, we can't ask them, you know, a quite, uh, we can't give them a scale and say, rate yourself on a one to 10 scale between absolutely hate religion and absolutely love religion. <laughs> and then you would have, then you would probably get that relationship in other studies. You can actually do that with religiosity, but here, I guess they're thinking it's just an on switch or an off switch, whether the kid goes to church, whether the kid is in a, at a parochial school or not. And I guess they're thinking the kids that don't have their own developed ideas about it. Yeah, that's right. So there were, you know, kids who were non-churchgoers and they went to public school. So that would be like the most secular. And then the least secular would be the ones who were churchgoers and they went to parochial school. And from my reading of the, the, the figures that they provide and the error bars, there doesn't seem to be a dose response. So there seems to be more of a, you know, either you are you know, secular, and you haven't been exposed to this. So, you know, you're a non-churchgoer, and you went to a public school, in which case you, you know, don't believe that uh, these characters from religious stories are real. Um, Or you're in the other camp. So it almost seems like even if you don't go to church, but you go to a parochial school, you know, the kids still are more likely to behave as if, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're the most churchgoing, etc. Um, so it's an interesting question about, you know, how I know that it's around this time, this age that kids are, are 
starting to learn to distinguish reality from fantasy uh, and that that going to church or having some exposure to religion uh, can really make it more difficult for them to tell the difference. That's one interpretation. On the other hand, you could argue, you know, actually, the stories in the Bible are based uh, presumably on true true individuals. So, you know, is is was Jesus Christ an actual real person? I mean, the answer is, yeah, probably. Um, then there's the interpretation uh, that comes around to, you know, well, why did he did, did he perform miracles? And if he did, you know, where did that where did they come from, etc. That's a whole other story. So in some sense, I can imagine that, you know, for a kid who doesn't ne- even believe doesn't necessarily believe in God, but, um, you know, has been told there's this person named Jesus Christ, that could be a confusing thing to say, is this a real person or not? I'd like to see a study along these lines that looks at belief in Santa. Because as you guys probably know, in the skeptical community, there's kind of a division. Do you do Santa with your kid or do you not do Santa with your kid? Because you're worried about setting them up to, to be a believer of things. Yeah, that would be a really interesting control in a sense here because you don't have all the trappings of religion, um, but you have a, an, an early fantasy in which, you know, a child is told that there could be such a thing as, you know, a, 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 someone who's, you know, real that has magical powers. And who can punish you. If you're bad. Ah, right. Yeah, based on this story study, you would assume I mean, because the kids the, the secular kids were discounting stories that involve magic. I mean, if you tell them about a man who can fly, um, from and get to every house in one evening in the world, and presumably they would also be more inclined to discount that. So I don't know, it's an empirical question, Chris. Maybe they'll say, Well, yeah, that's Santa. He's real. <laughs> okay. right. Everyone but Santa. <laughs> but I think it you know, it def- definitely does challenge this idea that we all just, you know, have this innate yearning to believe. Well, it looks like there's still a lot of work that we need to do to figure out how to the extent to which uh, belief is innate or something that is learned and cultural. Um, but on that note, I want to thank Clay Jones for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. It was great. It was very informative. Thank you. So with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with David Epstein. So as listeners to Inquiring Minds already know, we are really, really big fans of The Great Courses. That's right. They've been in production for over 20 years. They offer engaging lectures by top professors who are experts on their topics. (laughs) Including Indre. (laughs) Well, thank you, Chris. (laughs) And so we have been listening to one of these courses called Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills by Dr. Steve Novella. And we can't say enough that he's a prior podcast guest, did a great show about the science of GMOs. And this lecture is really rewarding one. I'll just say I really like in particular the, it's one of the last lectures. It's on experts and scientific consensus. And it really shows you why expertise is a quantity that you should respect and why lots of experts getting together are way better than one expert who might actually have crank views and so forth and so it's a lot like our interview with harry collins actually so it's very excellent but it's just one of a number of excellent lectures yeah and i think it's one way in which when you are faced with someone who has some kind of misinformation say about vitamin k for example you know, understanding how people come to these conclusions and what we should be doing to, you know, really be able to monitor the information that we're consuming. Uh, This is one lecture series that can really help you in those kinds of conversations. Definitely. So for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving you, our listeners, a special offer. You can order Your Deceptive Mind by Stephen Novella and get 80% off of the original price. And 
I got to remind you, though, that this 80% savings is only available for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, David Epstein. Thank you for having me. So you've just written a book called The Sports Gene, and I wanted to first start out by asking you, do you really think that there is a single gene that can um, affect someone's athletic ability, or really are we talking about the entire genetic code? Well, there are known single genes um, that that can cause a tremendous influence uh, in an individual's athletic performance. It's not It's not a single gene that um, would make someone a great athlete in all sports. So there's no single sports gene in that sense. And I think in, in that sense, you're correct in saying, well, it's, it's more of a, a sports genome, right? The, the sports gene being kind of a metaphorical idea, like you would say someone has the music gene. You don't mean they have one gene for music. But in fact, there are now some known single gene variants um, that all alone, amazingly, uh, can, can really drastically alter someone's athleticism, probably the the greatest single example is um, a man I write about in the book named Eero Manturanta, who uh, was a Finnish cross-country skier, um, who was probably the greatest endurance athlete in the world of his generation in the 1960s, who happens to have a mutation um, on his EPO receptor gene, so EPO being the hormone that signals your body to create red blood cells, and his mutation truncated that receptor in a way that, that basically lost the brakes that tells your body to stop producing red blood cells. And so he produced about 50% more oxygen-carrying red blood cells than a normal person. So he essentially was um, naturally what like Lance Armstrong was through doping technology. And in that case, uh, one single gene mutation very much um, was was a sports gene. And, and there are a couple other examples like that I write about in the book, but those are in the minority. Normally, we're talking about networks of genes and suites of traits that that make people uh, better suited to some sports than others. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that's a really fascinating example. And it's something that I want to get back to um, this whole idea of uh, blood doping. And you know, to what extent now that we can also, perhaps in the very near future, begin to alter some of our genes? How is that fair compared to some of these strategies that's, that that uh, athletes use in order to enhance performance? Um, so maybe we should just go there straight away. Uh, so was there anything that you found in your research that's, that is, is something that you feel could be used in the future to m- make, um, you know, in- enhance the athleticism of an unborn child, for example? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, no, if, if we weren't concerned about kind of some of the potential side effects, then, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, those, it, those rare cases where we've identified single gene variants that have a large effect, and again, that's the minority. In most cases, single genes only have tiny effects. Um, but in the cases where we've identified single genes, those become gene doping targets, basically. In fact, there was, um, there was evidence in, in a trial of a German track coach that he had been, uh, it was unclear whether he got or did not get, but was certainly trying to get a gene therapy drug um, that would alter uh, alter athletes in basically a very, very similar way to how Aeroman Taranto, the skier I was just talking about, was born. And in another chapter in the book, I write about the myostatin gene, which is a gene that regulates muscle growth. So it, it codes for a protein called myostatin that basically tells muscle to stop growing. 
And in, in rare cases, someone has a mutant version that basically doesn't tell their muscles to stop growing on time, and they end up being really, really muscle-bound. And, and the first adult human identified with this mutation happened to be a pro sprinter. You know, and now the mutation's been found in thoroughbred racing horses, et cetera, et cetera. And every time a researcher publishes on this, they're bombarded with requests from athletes to be basically experimented upon for gene therapy, even though it's probably not safe. And so these single gene targets do indeed, um, you know, give you targets for gene doping, safety notwithstanding. So there, there's actually two um, almost ways now in which we could do it. You could you could talk about current athletes who want, you know, gen- genetic gene doping now. Um, so and then, of course, there's parents who want to breed the next, um, you know, Derek Jeter, for example. Um, so, uh, you know, it makes me wonder whether you see a future in which if we do understand or when we do understand, you know, what these genes are and what their long term effects are. Um, do you think that we, we, we might come to a time where parents might then be choosing, uh, uh, you know, embryos on the basis of whether or not they have these mutations? Well, I think that's certainly scientifically plausible. Yes. I think, you know, before we get to that point, there's going to be a lot of, uh, hopefully discussion and about how, you know, we want to use that technology in society. Um, and, you know, given all the issues around choosing anything about embryos, I, I think it's not going to be so easy as the technology is here. You can go ahead and do it. But for some of these genes, again, for the vast majority of traits, we wouldn't even know what to choose really, what genes to choose to get the traits to be how we want them. But for some of these, um, you know, already you can choose an embryo. You can look at certain genes that cause certain diseases and say, I don't want this one, right? Mm-hmm. We do that already yeah. with disease. You could definitely do it with these athletic traits. The question of engineering them in, um, I think, would be a little bit trickier, but it's, it's not going to be beyond the realm of scientific plausibility. So I think it's going to be more regulatory and philosophical questions. So then that gets to really what is one of the most interesting parts for me about your book is this question of talent. Uh, so for most people, they look at, you know, very, very uh, elite athletes and they think to themselves, well, that person really has some kind of natural talent. It's, it's beyond. There's some, some physical gifts that are beyond what, you know, my capacity would be to become an elite runner, for example. Um, and I uh, work with musicians and I sort of try to help them develop practice strategies based on Erickson's deliberate practice model, which, you know, we'll talk about in a second. Um, but, you know, I always say to them, look, you know, musicians are different from athletes because, in, you know, with musicians, it's very, it's not clear at all what the single thing is that, you know, it, it really underlies what we call talent and if that's even worthwhile thinking about. Whereas in athleticism, you know, you've got height, you've got, you know, these physical characteristics. Um, but in your book, you talk, you talk a lot about different sports in which that's really not the case, that the athleticism, um, that a person has really is a, is a, is a, is a mark of many different things. And so I wanted to ask you about what, what do you think is the concept of talent? What, what do we mean when we talk about talent in sports? And is there any evidence for it? Well, first of all, it's interesting that you say you feel like, you know, in music, it's, it's, um, sort of less clear, but in sports, people assume that, that athletes have natural talent. Maybe some people assume that, but the kind of status quo for the last decade in a lot of the sports performance community has been that it's only practice, right? That there is no talent. There was a sort of pendulum swing to that idea. And now I think it's swinging back a little bit. But for me, I think the debate has sort of been on the wrong ground about what talent is. The, you know, just like the revolution that came out of medical genetics showed that because my 
gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism is different from your gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism. I might need three Tylenols. Well, you only need one. Or maybe no amount works for me. The same thing is coming out of exercise and sports genetics. No two people respond to the medicine of training the same way because of differences in their genes. And so it's turning out that the the talent of trainability, the ability to get more biological adaptation out of your one hour of training than the next guy or or the next girl is is really the most important kind of talent. In many cases, in exercise genetic studies, they take people who are untrained, train them. You see this huge array of response. You know, some people get very little improvement. Some get tons of improvement, even in response to the same identical training. And in some cases, baseline ability has a zero correlation with ability to improve. So in a lot of these studies, if you tested people the day they came in for the study and you picked the 10 people that you said are the most talented, you would miss 100% of the people who end the study looking the most talented. So this talent of trainability, I think, is really changing. You know, the, the definition of talent in a lot of sports psychology literature for years has been prowess that precedes any opportunity to have trained or learned, right? By that definition, learning to speak English is not a talent for humans because if you don't, if you don't train in it before the age of 12, you'll never learn it, ever, right? So that was an untenable definition to begin with. And now the findings out of exercise genetics really blow it away. Yeah, so I often hear people say, well, talent is someone who uh, is a, someone's ability to learn more quickly with fewer practice hours or, you know, less training. Um, but time and time again, at least in music, that hasn't been the case is that, you know, people who later on, you know, of course, all these studies are retrospective. Um, people who later on are shown to be, quote unquote, the most talented, they're also the ones who seem to have put in the most hours. So are, are you saying now that there are studies in sports that in which people are actually doing the the, the it the right way in, in the sense that it's longitudinal, that they're, they're starting with the same baseline, giving the same amount of training, and then still, still seeing major differences? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, um, when when there's a non-restricted sample in music, the same thing shows up. So I, I wouldn't say that's true that that hasn't been done in music. In fact, there's just a big, a, a large twin study out in music showing a very high um, heritability, which is basically a statistical estimate of uh, the inheritance of, of ability to get good in something. And so in the most of the music studies, so Erickson studies, so I've seen a lot of the actual data for Erickson study where he says, okay, the best people practice the most, but that's actually not exclusively true. He just didn't include a measure of variance in his study. So when, when I talked to him about his actual data, he said, well, yeah, actually most of the best people hadn't accumulated 10,000 hours. The average was just skewed by this small number of people who, who went way over 10,000 hours. So it actually wasn't the case. There was not perfect co correspondence between training and, and ability. So I think the the issue, though, of course, is that uh, deliberate practice is something pretty specific, and how you practice is going to be really dictate to the extent to which you improve. And we know that from a lot of psychological research um, on you know different ways in which people can train. And so when you talk about even you know ten thousand hours being the number that people bandy about as the amount of time that you need in order to master a particular complex skill. Um, Regardless of whether or not that's, you know, an exact number, of, you know, of oh, course, I think that, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally, totally untrue. But, but the point is, is that it's a lot of hours, right? Because I think a lot of that time, you know, we spend, we, we we're doing something that is probably not going to be necessarily ultimately useful, but it's hard to know when you're training, um, you know, what it is that's going to ultimately lead to that particular improvement. But 
you know, in most of these studies, you see even when, you know, even when they look at the variance, it, you know, it, it accounts for 20 to 30%. And so people might think, okay, well, so what's the eight, 70 or 80% uh, r- left? But I would argue as a psychologist to be able to um, account for the variance of a something so complex, like, for example, athleticism or musical skill, you know, 20 to 30% of the variance, that's huge. It's not that um, That's huge. actually a <laughs> it's not that huge for the entire amount of training. And also, 20%, I would say, is high for a music study. There was just a meta-analysis done that reviewed uh, that reviewed how much variance deliberate practice accounted for across a range of skills. I think music was like 16% or something like that. So it's not nothing. And you're absolutely right that the kind of practice matters, right? Like going to a driving range and hitting balls isn't the kind of practice that's going to make you any better at golf whatsoever. But in Erickson's study, he was only counting deliberate practice, and he invented the definition and there still wasn't perfect right. correspondence. So I think it's hard to make that argument for the for the study that is the bedrock of all this. Right. No, I, I mean, I see where you're coming from. But I'm also trying to figure out, you know, what we can do in the future as people who are trying to train up uh, individuals. And so I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at is this notion that and in particular, I think it's true in music more so than athleticism, is that we don't really have a um, recipe book for training is that when we're talking about deliberate practice or, you know, even though, I mean, and Erickson's definition is pretty broad, right? It's, you know, focused training Getting with broader feedback. By the day. Yeah. So, so, you know, that's been a frustration, I think, for people who are educators in any field is that, you know, you take his recipe for deliberate practice and it's really hard to know what to do. Um, and I think in music in particular, there's a lot of variability in terms of the training that an individual gets um, because it's really an apprenticeship model where, you know, you, especially in classical music training, that's what I'm thinking about. But in, in uh, sports, there's been a lot more research done about what kind of training is effective. And there seems to be more kind of, um, you know, people are more accepting of having a training method and then being able to apply that. So in, in a sense, you, you know, you, you have a large group of people, you'll have more of the same training um, within that group if, if you've, you know, they have the same set of coaches or the same um, mentors. So I actually suspect that as we get, you know, better at training musicians and, and understanding what we mean, that we'll see more. Um, but, but, we can put that aside for the moment. No, but that's an, that's an interesting that, that's an inter- really interesting point because I think you're absolutely right, right? So I, I wouldn't say for all sports that's true that people know what they're doing better. Like we've only just realized that pitching machines are totally worthless for baseball practice, for example, because they don't teach you kind of the body to read body movements the way that you need to. So teams are getting rid of those. Um, and at the top level now, training is becoming individualized. But I think you're absolutely right, and I, I think one of the points that that's sort of embedded in what you're saying is that. We should be thinking more about quality of practice. And, and I think, you know, to, to go to sports psychology, it seems like one of the, one of the things that's helping people find the kind of practice that works is self-regulatory behavior, which is basically going through this constant system of, of planning, um, you know, executing a type of practice, self-evaluation to see if it helped, and then sort of repeating that cycle over and over and over. And it looks to me in studies of, of kids who go on to become elite, whether it's in chess, sports, music, they tend to more often exhibit that self-regulatory behavior where they're almost almost taking, you know, a scientist's view like of themselves as an N equals one experiment and continually evaluating and evaluating, and they, they better figure out what works for them. Yeah, and I think in some ways that's kind of a meta-deliberate practice, right? Because that's one of the major components of deliberate practice is to, you know, make sure that whatever it is that you're doing is actually having the effect that you want it to have um, and, and, and to have feedback. 
But in a lot of these, as you talk about in your book, in a lot of these very, very complex tasks, um, you can't be too much in your own head, right? Eventually, you want to go from having something that is conscious, I'm going to think about how I'm going to hold the golf club, and I'm going to think about how to swing it, to something that is automatic or implicit or outside of consciousness. Now I'm just going to do it. And in fact, if I get into, you know, so quote unquote, my head too much, you could actually um, harm your swing. So you you, know, you want to go from an, a, a sort of, a, you know, an, an explicit or conscious way of, of learning to an automatic task. Um, so the, the question of how that happens is something that psychologists are still working out. And of course, this is, I think, where the quality of training comes in. Um, but, you know, to what extent then do you think that genetics can affect uh, that ability to go from, you know, to, to ba- basically um, take instructions in and then, you know, output them in this automatic skill learning way? That, that's a that's a really difficult question because that's a pretty complex trait. Um, and I don't think anyone sort of has the book on that answer. Look, when in, in well done behavioral genetic studies and, and most of them, I would argue are probably not <laughs> well done. Um, but, you know, personality traits always have some, some heritability. Again, the statistical measure of how much of it is influenced by your genetic inheritance. And it's usually moderate, right? So, so it leaves you saying, well, some of that's, some of that's nature and some of that's nurture. I, I do think there's some, and I just had an afterword to the book where I talk about a gene that's now been replicated a couple times showing, showing it has some influence in sort of basically muscle memory. So it's involved in brain chemistry and, and people who, um, say, train on like a driving course seem to more quickly uh, automate, you know, the ability to drive a certain course and remember it better than other people do, um, depending on how uh, uh, they metabolize brain-derived neurotrophic factor, basically. And so I think there's some, you know, I would want to see that replicated more um, because single-gene studies are kind of notoriously um, difficult to replicate. But I think there, that's a conceptual basis. Uh, for, for that sort of things, for sort of being able to incorporate instructions quickly. But I think that involves a whole suite of traits, many of which are highly coachable. Yeah, and that's really interesting that you, that you bring up BDNF, um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, because that's something that is, is definitely involved in the critical period, which is, of course, you know, these periods of time in which we are, our brains are very plastic, especially in early infancy, and we're sort of learning new things. Um, so do you feel that, that there is some now evidence in, in terms of your research about, um, you know, differences in the way that, that people are able to use BDNF later on in life that might account for some differences in trainability? I, I think there's suggestive evidence of that. Yeah. I, 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 the reason I waited till the afterward, so I put it in the afterward and said, I cut this from the original book because I'm kind of waiting for some more follow-up on it. But so here's the caveat and here's some stuff that I cut. Um, so I, I think there's suggestive evidence of that and I'd want to see more work to be sure. But, but I do think it suggests that. So I've often, fa- I've often thought that if there was ever going to be a pill that was going to be developed that was going to make you more trainable or learn things faster, that it would involve BDNF. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a smart, I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess I want to get back a little bit then to some of the genetic components of trainability. Was there anything else that you found uh, that suggests that just the ability to train uh, has has a kind of more genetic basis? You mean the ability to like engage in large amounts of training as opposed to improving from a certain kind of training itself? Well, I think, you know, we can talk about each of those things in turn, right? Because I think they're all important. So one of the things, um, you know, for example, 
just the ability to tolerate, uh, you know, physical fatigue seems to be, you know, that if, if that is genetic, then it seems someone who can tolerate more fatigue can train longer, train harder. Um, or, you know, on the other hand, you could argue, well, actually, it's the recovery period that is important. So, you know, were there any kind of genetic traits that you found that made um, certain athletes more able to get, you know, to get more out of the training that they were given? Or to train harder and longer. Well, so I think there's no question now that there are, you know, at the most basic level, genes that predispose some people to overuse injuries, to kinds of injuries if they train too much. And and the most prominent of those being genes that, genes that code for collagens, which are basically, you know, colloquially the body's glue sort of holds tendons and ligaments together and things like that. And there are now sort of the few reasonable direct-to-consumer genetic tests that are available because most of them are not reasonable and they're just marketing stuff. Um, but the few that might be reasonable for athletes are those that look for predisposition to, say, tearing um, the ACL in your knee or uh, rupturing your Achilles tendon. And those are things that happen, um, you know, in many cases when people are undergoing extremely hard training loads. And some people are more predisposed to doing that. So they just can't handle the same load necessarily. As far as sort of um, mental recovery, just sort of the psychology of being able to train, um, to, to undertake like a more rigorous training plan, I don't think there's, I haven't seen any convincing evidence. You know, I've seen, I, I was a national level runner and I've sort of, I think I saw that in my own teammates, some of whom could, you know, handle much larger training loads than others psychologically, although I have no idea what the basis of that was, where that came from. Um, and so, you know, while again, I think there's some interesting conceptual work in terms of brain chemistry, genes that impact brain chemistry, like the so-called warrior, warrior gene, which is involved again in, in, uh, metabolism of, uh, neurochemicals, you know, I think again that gives a conceptual basis that some people sort of um, are are the, the stimulation of training or even competing gets them sort of to their right stimulation level and they don't really need to recover from that as much psychologically whereas other people that kind of overstimulates them and they need a greater period of recovery but that single gene accounts for seems to account for a tiny tiny portion of variance in that trait uh, so maybe there are many others that differentiate people um, so I think all I would be willing to say at this point is that there seems to be um, a conceptual basis in, in that genes have some impact on that behavior. But I also think, again, um, you know, I was someone for who running at the national level kind of I felt was almost overstimulating and I'd have to psychologically recover. But, you know, I, I started engaging in things like meditation and made a huge difference. So I think there's uh, no one should feel like they're cons necessarily constrained by by their biology and can't can't improve that. Mm -hmm. And I often think that, you know, when we when we don't understand what what the relationship is between these complex factors, that's when we start to invoke things like, well, that means it's talent. <laughs> um, and that's one of the reasons why I always balk against the use of the word talent, because I feel it just means we don't understand that part of the variability. And so it's not it's not useful for for uh, people who are trying to get better. Well, there's there's a there's yeah, there's some famous quote about like, you know, for sports writers, like talent is like what you know, sports writers haven't yet attributed to, um, you know, training the coach or God or something like that. Right. But, or genes. <laughs> yeah. Or genes. But yeah, it's, it's interesting because at least in sports, you know, talent is a pervasive, uh, topic of discussion in front of the public, like from commentators, basically every game you ever watch. And yet like none of those people have probably read like a single study about what talent may or may not actually be. 
Yeah, and especially in in uh, I think especially in sports where you know you have to get kids early, right? So somehow you have to have a you know a scout who finds the kid and and is going to devote the money and the time in order to train a kid. Um, the same thing is true in music. You know, people talk about prodigies, etc. Um, because there's this sense that you know if you don't get them at the right time, they're never going to develop their full potential. And I think that's more true for something that's purely physical. Although sports, we know now, is not. Purely physical, as you've been saying, and I would say that's that's less true for sports, actually. So there's there's now a pretty pretty strong body of evidence that we've over specialized kids too early, and it actually makes them worse athletes. So we think of like Tiger Woods, who was you know showing Bob Hope his swing when he was two years old on TV, and think that's the norm. That's the vast exception. The norm is a guy like Steve Nash, who was the two time NBA MVP, didn't even play basketball until he was 13 years old. You know, eight years behind me becomes one of the most skilled basketball players of all time. So there seems to be, you know, I don't want to sort of harp on that that pre-age 12 brain plasticity period, but, you know, that's the period when you can change your native language. Um, and it seems like it's there's some benefit to what what sports scientists are now calling a sampling period during that time, where you sort of gain a range of, of physical skills and, and bounce around from one sport to another. And it's actually really, really interesting because the the push towards specialization in sports, largely based on the 10,000 hour stuff. So it's been a disaster for sports development. So in the United States, it's caused this early hyper-specialization of kids, which first of all, in sports means you're just picking the person who's getting toward puberty quicker and everyone's going to catch up after puberty. But um, Jean Cote, a researcher in Canada, has has looked at the the chances, the odds of becoming a professional athlete based on the size of your hometown and so bigger cities have the coaches with the best technical expertise and the best facilities. And so they specialize kids earlier. And as a consequence, no pro athletes come from there anymore. So the, the odds, every single American sport, it's towns of 50,000 to 90,000 that have, are producing vastly overrepresented for producing elite athletes. Cause those are the smallest, it's the second smallest category of towns because they're big enough to have a team and small enough to avoid all of the hyper specialization that the 10,000 hours has caused. That's really interesting because often you hear, you know, so and so came from Podunk, Iowa, and isn't it? It seems like doubly amazing that they got, you know, the the type of training they needed to become an elite athlete. But in in fact, what you're saying is the opposite. It's luckily he came from Podunk, Iowa. Oh yeah, <laughs> because if he came from, you know, Seattle, then he might not have made it. I, I mean, I, I just here hold on. I just brought the slides up right in front of me, Cote's slides, and and so basketball exactly is a sport where we think of being like sort of dominated by people from the inner city. Um, which first of all, it's not. I mean, so actually the, the Times, New York Times did a piece this year showing that socioeconomic status is actually a positive predictor of making it to the NBA, not negative, counter to the stereotype. And I'm looking at Cote's slides now. So the odds ratio of someone from a city greater than 5 million making it to the NBA in the US is 0.37. So they're 0.37 times as likely as normal to make the NBA. Whereas for someone from a town of 50,000 to 99,000, it's, it's about 11 times normal. Wow. Um, and for less than 50,000, it's 1.1 times. In, in football, it's 11 times. In golf, it's 11 times. In women's golf, it's 27 times as likely for people from that size town. Women's soccer, six times as likely. Um, it's every, every single sport plays out this way. So in, in, in football, kids, the chance of a kid from a city the size of, uh, greater than 5 million of making it to the NFL is odds ratio is 0 0.01, right? Nobody is coming from those places anymore. In baseball, the chances of a kid from a town 50,000 to 99,000 making it to professional baseball 21 times normal wow so this is it's now every happening in every sport in the US because we've over specialized in the places that can afford to do it wow i'm sure there are a lot of coaches in big cities that are a little bit worried about their jobs at the moment <laughs> 
Well, no, I mean, the thing is, it's like, it doesn't matter what, it almost doesn't matter what you tell parents. Like, AAU basketball has a, has a, has a second graders national championships now. This is like kids who are like overhand heaving a ball at a 10 foot rim, but they've convinced parents it's like an important part of the scouting pipeline, you know, and their kids will get behind if they don't go. Um, So it's like a big money making operation. Wow. So another topic that is, you know, potentially extremely controversial that you don't shy away from is this idea of um, race and its influence in terms of athleticism. So I wanted to just, you know, get you to tell us a little bit about what are the sort of major findings that you found out about, about whether or not race does uh, dictate, you know, whether someone has a particular athletic prowess. Well, for starters, I think the, you know, race itself is becomes a really coarse term. That's why I took some time in the book to sort of step aside from sports and talk about what that does and doesn't mean from a genetic perspective anyway. Because, you know, since we come all come from Africa not so long ago, um, and, and, you know, we are all just a subset of a subset of a subset of the genetic diversity in humanity that left Africa, like you, you know, almost literally could like get rid of every white person on earth and you wouldn't lose much of humanity's genetic diversity. You know, you would lose some obviously genes for white skin and blonde hair, but you wouldn't lose most. So, so to just say, I think a black athlete is something we have to be a little careful about. Cause like if you're standing in Africa and you say a black athlete, you're basically encompassing almost the entire spectrum of physiology and humanity, right? And so th- th- that said, there are certain traits that differ between populations um, that can be important for sports. So the, you know, the most sort of the greatest overrepresentation of sporting prowess from a single population in history in any sport are the Kalenjin runners of Kenya that I write about, the marathoners. So we think of, mar- of Kenyans as being great marathoners. And the Kenyans think of the Kalenjin as being great marathoners. The Kalenjin are, make up only 12% of the population, but basically all the great runners. And they happen to have, just on average, there's plenty of variability in every population, but they have on average a certain physiology that's conducive to distance running. And that's because they have their ancestry at very low latitude in a hot and dry climate. I was crisscrossing the equator when I was visiting them. They have extremely long proportional limbs and they're very thin at the extremity. It's an adaptation to cooling, uh, to, to, for cooling, um, because of their ancestry. It's the same reason a radiator has long coils to increase surface area compared to volume to let heat out. And because the leg is like a pendulum, the less, the longer it is and the thinner at the extremity, the more energy efficient it is to swing. And it turns out that's sort of the unique trait they have. Energy, they use very little oxygen to go at a given running pace. And, you know, to put their achievement in perspective, 17 American men in history have run faster than two hours and 10 minutes in the marathon. That's four minutes and 58 second per mile pace. 32 Kalenjin did that um, last October alone. Uh, so, but it's not, it's not, you know, black athletes dominating running. This is one very specific community that has a specific ancestry and a specific environment that, that allows them to sort of develop those talents. Whereas on the other side, across the continent, you have the area of ancestry of people who almost could not be more physiologically different, but their descendants sort of dominate uh, the sprint and explosion sports. So um, I think race is too coarse a marker, but there's no doubt that um, specific geographic ancestry influences bodies in a way that, that impacts sports performance. But certainly there's also a cultural side too, where you see, you know, if there's someone, for example, here, the stereotype is that there's you know, a black youth in the inner city who has very few options. But one thing that he sees are these role models in the NBA. So, you know, he practices and wants to become a a great basketball player. To what extent do you think that it is his cultural milieu and the 
his options rather than the fact that he is black versus a white kid um, that influences his, his potential for becoming an, a, a pro basketball player. That's an, that's an interesting question. I mean, and again, I would say it's contrary to what most people think because it turns out that being from higher socioeconomic status is it makes you more likely to make the NBA, not the reverse. Um, so I think people, you know, so that that would argue against the idea that poverty is a net good for making it to the NBA. And I think that could be for many reasons. But I, I absolutely think, you know, I, I think in the case of the Kalenjin, for example, there is no question that they are running to make a living. And that if they, if their economy was, you know, turned into uh, Sweden's tomorrow, that running phenomenon would be gone, absolutely gone. Like I, I was there talking to people who are training three times a day and, and they're like, oh yeah, if I could get a job like with the police, yeah, I'd be done running tomorrow. You know, so there's so little opportunity cost for them, which I think is part of what you're getting at to try to train basically like Olympians that you get a lot of people who are willing to do it. Um, and I think that can't be underestimated. Um, at the same time, you know, again, to talk about marathoners, there are, there are far more kids kind of, I mean, there are millions and millions and millions of kids all over Kenya and all over Africa and all over India, for that matter, who like run to and from school and are impoverished and could benefit from winning a marathon. But it's still the Kalenjin who stand out. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about sort of the the physical aspects of of genetics and sports, etc. But I want to just move to the mental, some of the mental things that you've kind of discovered. And one thing that, you know, I think you start out your book with this with this notion and it's something that in terms of how we understand um what makes a great expert uh you know we understand that what's happening really is that the person is um is able to predict the future more accurately than someone who is not an expert right so you know we talk about these these chess players who are experts who are able to sort of see the entire board um as one chunk you know as one kind of idea as opposed to having to look at each individual piece which is what a novice does in order to predict the next move um so so tell me a little bit about some of the research that shows that, in fact, this kind of chunking is an important part of, of sports and that, that that is something that separates the elite athletes from um, the amateurs. Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, just since we've been talking about music, before I go right into that, I was surprised to find, like, I thought some great piano players have, like, really fast reaction speed because their fingers move so fast. But all the expertise studies says actually they just, like, know where they're going before they need to get to the next key. So they're just anticipating better, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Same same deal for surgeons who are experts. Um, so it's not just that they have, like, fast fingers. Um, but anyway, so that 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 study you bring up, I think it, it sort of originally came out of famous chess study where uh, players of different levels were shown boards and and the grandmasters could see a board for three seconds and then it was taken away and they could recreate the whole board. And so the idea was, well, all right, that's what makes a, a great chess master. They just have this, you know, they're just gifted with a great memory. And then a couple decades later, that study was repeated. But in this case, there was added a, an aspect of the study where all the players were shown boards that didn't have a meaningful game arrangement. And in this case, the grandmasters were basically no better than the novices. So it turned out that they didn't have sort of miraculous memory. They had learned to uh, group the board into chunks, right? They, they had learned how to break down groups of pieces and relations of pieces to one another into sort of a meaningful picture that was easy for them to remember. An, an example I like to give people, because we all do this in things in which we are expert, is the English language. Like if, if I gave you a 20, 20 random words right now, you'd have a lot of trouble repeating them back to me. 
But if I gave you a 20-word meaningful sentence, you might be able to repeat it back to me, or very closely, because it's not that your memory changed in those 10 seconds, but you've learned a system of grammar and groups of words and phrases that you can break down into meaningful chunks. So you, you sort of don't have to just rely on your working memory. And it turns out sports works in a very similar way. So a major league baseball hitter kind of shouldn't be able to do what they do with hitting a hundred mile per hour fastball. It's, it's, it, it takes, it takes a fifth of a second just to, just for your brain to acknowledge that a ball is in flight and for you to start your muscles twitching, just to start them moving. And that's half the total flight time of a major league pitch. So the only way, and, and you know the advice that everyone got in Little League to keep your eye on the ball? It's total nonsense. Our eyes can't actually track a, an object that's angular position is changing that rapidly as it gets close to your head. And so you could turn off the lights or close your eyes when the ball were halfway in. It wouldn't make any difference if it weren't psychologically upsetting. Um, so what the way that players are actually able to do this is because they've learned how to chunk body movements. So the shifts of the torso of the pitcher, rotation of the shoulder, the flicker of the ball, which is the flashing pattern that the seams make as the ball spins. And they group that basically into a signal that says ball's going here as soon as the pitcher releases it, you know, swing or don't swing. And so they're able to accomplish something by by not relying on their reaction speed alone, because actually they don't have, I mean, like I outscored some of the greatest hitters in history and simple reaction time tests. And that's not because I scored that well. I was in like the 68th percentile or something. They just weren't especially remarkable. And so it's really this kind of cognitive expertise they learn that allows them to look as if they're reacting faster than humanly possible just because they are judging the field, their, their version of the chessboard and seeing what's going to come in the future. And so one of my favorite stories in your book was one in which that was proven, you know, to the nth degree with Jenny Finch, who's a, who was a softball yeah. player, softball pitcher. And, uh, you know, you, you describe how, you know, well, why don't you tell the story? Yeah, so Jenny was one of the best softball pitchers in the world, and and this sort of started when uh, actually when Barry Bonds, um, uh, who you know is one of the greatest hitters of all time, um, approached her in an All Star game and sort of said, "I've seen you pitch against all those little girls. Like you got to come pitch against a man." You know, he literally says to her, "You can't be pretty and good and not pitch against a handsome guy who's good." <laughs> so he's obviously like flirting with her, right? And and he says, "No, bring a camera. I want the whole world to see a real hitter." So she gets a cameraman, goes out to face him, and he you know. He can't even hit a foul ball. He's missing by like half a foot, right? And and Barry didn't know why he wouldn't be able to hit her. But it, it went so well for Jenny that it turned into like a weekly television show where she would go around to Major League Baseball teams and strike out their best hitters. And invariably, it would be a guy going like, man, girls hit this stuff, you know, because they didn't understand that they are not relying on their reaction speed because the transit time of her pitch is, is, even though she pitches from a closer mound, is about the same they're used to in baseball. But they probably thought they do rely on their reaction speed, so why wouldn't they be able to hit this pitch? But they don't. And they, her body movements are different. She's throwing underhand. The spin of the ball is totally different. So they're stripped of all that, all that information they spent time sort of learning how to interpret unconsciously. And so, you know, they, they can't hit her. They, they can't hit her at all. They're not even foul balls. The only time they were able to hit her was when she said, I'm going to pitch the ball here. And then occasionally, <laughs> you know, which, which like a blind person can hit it if they know exactly where to swing. So that's not a test of their expertise. And let's not forget, it's a much bigger ball. <laughs> it is. It's a bigger ball. So it seems like it should be easier to hit. This goes to one of my, uh, one of my like mottos I like to have for, for sports journalists, which is just because you're a bird doesn't mean you're an ornithologist, right? So we like to ask athletes how they did what they did. And sometimes they're the worst position to tell you because they've automated these skills, right? Yeah. So they, they, they don't know exactly how they're doing it. Yeah. And that's actually one of the reasons why I rile against the masterclass model in, in musician training, because often the best performers aren't the best teachers. That's a great point, right? It's like Michael Jordan, who 
when he got out of basketball and became a manager and he drafted Kwame Brown with the first pick of the draft and started mentoring him. Like he was like the worst coach ever because he's just like, no, just, just do it better. You know, just do it this way. Why can't you do it this way? Well, I think great athletes, it, it shows when they become coaches right away, they need to learn how to become coaches, not just to have been great athletes. Right. Well, I think the world needs more of that television show with Jenny Finch striking out a bunch of all-star ball players, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> oh, I, I totally agree. So thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, David Epstein. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is a great interview. I learned so much. Um, and there's so much that goes against what you would assume to be true about sports. I, it, it seems like there's so many things in sports that are wrapped in myth and, you know, legend and or wives say, or, or coaches tales. Um, but the thing about, and I'll just pick one thing out. The thing about people living in relatively small towns having the greatest chances of being professional athletes because big cities make kids over specialize. Wow. I was like, Whew, never, yeah. never thought of that. I mean, that completely blew my mind too. And I, I like to pride myself in that I actually do read the books that uh, I talk about when I interview guests. Um, but in this case, I hadn't read the book in its entirety. And uh, that was one part that I hadn't gotten to. And so in the conversation, it just, I, I was just, I nearly fell off my chair when he mentioned this. And so, uh, you know, I think it's something that is really interesting and something that is totally applicable to new parents, right? So if you're trying to think about wh what you can do, you know, there's there's so much pressure now to get your kid to do all kinds of sports and extracurricular activities, and you need to get into college, so you need to do all these extra things. And this idea that over-specialization actually makes it less likely that they will become professionals in these sports, you know, it's totally counterintuitive, and it's the kind of finding that I really love. Uh, and that's, that's where science can make its greatest impact, is to really turn over, you know, a, a, a commonly held assumption that just simply isn't true yeah definitely definitely achieved that and so great show and that's it for another episode of inquiring minds i want to thank you all for joining us and you can find us now on our very own website motherjones.com slash inquiring minds where all of our previous episodes are archived you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to Inquiring Minds at climatedesk.org. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's top professors to your fingertips. They have over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more. And The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. And I actually listen to them through my iPhone on their app, which I can take on the Metro. Best of all, you can listen to and watch or watch, if you choose to, The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And for limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of these courses, Your Deceptive Mind by Professor Stephen Novella. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiring minds to find out more. Again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiring minds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. 
Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.